Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of leb and I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the, way of, on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, let him not stand up in his armor, spare not her young men, vote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets, For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let every one save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. This is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken, and nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her, and let us go, each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted even Lifted up even to the skies, the Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as many as locusts, and they shall raise the shout of victory over you. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretching out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. You are my hammer and a weapon of war. With you I break nations in pieces. With you I destroy kingdoms. With you I break in pieces the horse and his rider. With you I break in pieces the chariot and the charioteer. With you I break in pieces man and woman. With you I break in pieces the old man and the youth. With you I break in pieces the young man and the young woman. With you I break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you I break in pieces the farmer and his team. With you I break in pieces governors and commanders. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. 
No stone shall be taken from you for a corner, no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Set up a standard on the earth, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations for war against her, summon against her the kingdoms, Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz, appoint a marshal against her, bring up horses like bristling locusts, prepare the nations for war against her, the kings of the Medes, with their governors and deputies in every land under their dominion, the land trembles and writhes in pain. For the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand. Make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The warriors of Babylon have ceased fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength has failed. They have become women. Her dwellings are on fire. Her bars are broken. One runner runs to meet another. And one messenger to meet another to tell the king of Babylon that his city is taken on every side. The fords have been seized, the marshes are burned with fire, and the soldiers are in panic. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest will come. Read that far in God's word, our Study of chapter 50, we talked about a teeter-totter, up with Babylon, uh, up down with Babylon, up with Israel. Uh, two outcomes, one, at, one child goes down on the teeter-totter, the other child goes up, remember that? It's similar here, but in chapter 51, um, verses 1 and 2, the outcomes from God's winnowing. There's two outcomes from God's winnowing. Uh, winnowing is what was done at harvest time in the old world before modern machinery when grain was tossed up by a fork into the air during a stiff crosswind. The good heavy kernels would fall back down onto the threshing floor to be kept while the shells and husks got blown away by the stiff crosswind. That's, that's winnowing, threshing. Winnowing illustrates the main point. The main point, if you're looking at your bulletin handout, is this. The purpose of the Lord God was to destroy Babylon in order to uphold his covenant promise to his people. You see how there's two actions going on at the same time? It's like the teeter-totter, but the winnowing is now our illustration given to us by God in this passage. I will winnow you, he says to Babylon. It means the, the good kernels come down and the husks get blown away. So first we'll see how he doesn't forsake his people rather takes action to defeat our enemies and to vindicate us, verses 1 to 11. Then he takes differentiating action. I'll explain that because God and we are everything to one another. He is our portion. We are his inheritance, verses 12 to 24. And then our third and last point, 25 to 33, the Lord's purposes stand both against Babylon and for his people. So first let's look, beginning at verse 1, how God is the initiator. Listen to verse 1. Thus says the Lord... Behold, I will stir up. Who started all this? It's the Lord God. It's time. He says. And the next word right after stir up is a Hebrew word I want to teach you. It's the word ruach. Ruach. It means wind or spirit. So verse 1 says, God says, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer. And other English translations say, I will stir up a destroying wind. Either is correct. The word occurs four times in our passage, which is why I bring it up to you. If you look, next is verse 11, where the Lord stirred up the spirit of the kings, or we could say the wind of kings. Verse 16, significantly, the God will bring forth wind from his storehouses. That's the word ruach again. And the fourth time, verse 17, the idols have no ruach, no breath, no wind in them. 
simply pointing out that false gods are, in fact, non-existent. So it's the same Hebrew word, ruach, that we find in Genesis 1, verse 2. The spirit or ruach of God hovers over the waters. And the point is clear from there to here, from Genesis to Jeremiah, that God's spirit could send a creating wind to separate land from water, and God's spirit can send a destroying wind to differentiate and separate Israel from Babylon. The theme in Jeremiah 51 is of God stirring up a wind in order to winnow or to separate. So I like to translate the word wind each of the four times it occurs here. But it's the spirit causing the wind, so we're safe either way. Verse 2, God sent this winnowing, which required a stiff wind. Verse 2, it's the destroying wind suddenly blowing so swiftly that the archer won't have time to bend his bow. If you're an experienced archer, you can bend your bow pretty quickly, right? But also, as we continue with the images, the man in armor will not even have time to stand up. He's trying to put his armor on. He'll be killed before he even stands up. Verse 4, they shall fall down slain in the land. Why? Verse 5 tells us again why. That Babylon is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. He's not just the God over there in Israel. He's the God over all the nations. Let Babylon learn. Let every nation learn that he's not just the God over Israel, the God over a small group of people that call themselves Christians. He's the God over all the heavens and the earth. Let all nations take note. And this God then comes in verse 5 and differentiates. How refreshing it must be if you're in exile and you're reading this book. Wow, God will take down Babylon but take us home. That's cool, right? That's refreshing. That's what you've been told. But then to hear it confirmed in this book, this is the notion in verse 5 where we read, Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God. It's fascinating how this word not forsaken in the original language could literally be the phrase not widowed. Not widowed like a um, woman's husband dies and she becomes a widow. Not widowed. God is reassuring his people using strong covenant language borrowed from marriage covenant that he will not forsake his bride. He will not leave her. He will not break his covenant so she will not be widowed through any means. And it's a perfect translation to say she will not be forsaken. In fact, verse 6 is concerned with collateral damage to her. There's so much punishment coming on Babylon that the precious people of God are told to be safe by running for your lives, verse 6. Verse 7, Babylon used to be the golden cup in the Lord's hand to cause an impact on the nations, if you will, depending on what's drunk from the cup, as you read there in verse 7. All the nations must drink it. It's another way to poetically say what's happening to the nations. God's using Babylon to destroy them. But suddenly in verse 8, that cup falls and breaks. And surprisingly now, listen to this, there's sadness over this incurable condition of Babylon. Look at verse 8. Wail for Babylon. Wait, wail for Babylon? Aren't they the bad guy? Take balm for her pain? You mean we're supposed to send the EMTs out for Babylon and try to help them with their pain from the injury, from God's judgment? Perhaps she may be healed, we read in verse 8. And then verse 9, we would have healed Babylon but she was not healed. There's grief that's expressed here for Babylon. It sounds to us like that time, remember, when Jesus in Matthew 23, 37, reflects on his city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often 
Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Similar to the grief of Jesus over Jerusalem, here we have in these verses 8 and 9 in chapter 51 of Jeremiah a surprising expression of divine grief instructing us to grieve for the evil city of Babylon. Longing expressed here for Babylon to be healed of its desperate sin sickness. And so I would say to you we learned something very important about our God, both here and in the words of Jesus towards Jerusalem, that even while God is filled with fiery wrath and judgment, it's still a reluctant resorting to judgment. That messages have been sent and prophets have been sent, that all else has failed, and the people still, at long last, refuse to turn to God. That is true for Babylon Recall that being true for Israel. The tidal wave of the lesson is we're not that different from the world. Israel's not that different from Babylon. We best not sit on our high horse and judge others when we ourselves have failed God the same way that Babylon has. The second half of verse 9 begins to show that when man attempts to build himself up to the skies, such as the famous Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, Babel being the Hebrew word, same word in Greek as Babylon, and so we borrowed it from Greek into English as Babylon, but it's the same place, the same concept. Instead of man being built up in the Tower of Babel, it ends up only building up God's judgment against him. Look at verse 9. It's not her towers that have reached up high, but instead we read her judgment has reached up to heaven and has filled or lifted up even to the skies. And we see that echoed in Revelation 18.5, where we read, Babylon's sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so what God is about is not only destroying Babylon, but also bringing his people out, his exiles. And they would do more than simply escape with their lives as a picture of prisoners of war coming all ragged and hungry. Oh no, what's envisioned here is more. Vindication, we're told in verse 10. Vindication of the sinning exiles who fully deserve their chastisement are now fully reclaimed, fully pardoned as of chapter 50, and declared to be fully the people of the Lord. Listen to verse 10. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. What is the work of the Lord our God? The punishing wind or the spirit of God against Babylon is viewed as punishment for their sins while vindication blows the exiles home, like the punishing wind destroys, but also blows behind the backs of the exiles as they walk home. And to put it in terms of the language of our modern confessions of faith and doctrinal statements, God provided more than justification. He provided adoption. He said, I'm your father and you're my children, I'm going to take you all the way home. That's the kind of language we're discovering in verse 10. We move on to our second point. God takes differentiating action. I promise to explain it. It simply means God's doing one thing for Babylon as doing a different thing for his people. So that would require knowing who's who, right? In verse 12, the Lord has purposed against Babylon, so watchmen are to be set up so that no one can move in or out of Babylon without the Lord's express purpose being accomplished in that. Verse 13, as if we're watching this fast-moving slideshow, we get a new slide. And the new slide is now a picture of weaving. Uh, The length needed from the loom has been reached, 
and the cloth has been prepared, so now the finished product is ready to be cut and taken off the loom. And that's God's image now for the reign or the life of Babylon has been reached, and so now God will cut them off. Right here, just suddenly, it's over. Verse 14, next slide. It's like the locusts strip the fields of everything green, so the invading troops will strip Babylon bare of everything of value. The invading army will enjoy a bountiful plunder, we're told, from the success of their invasion, which will lead them to shout in triumph. And then what's fascinating is verses 15 to 19. They come like a unit, like a mini hymn or song of praise that draws attention to the majesty and superiority of the one who issued this double decree, out with Babylon, home with my people. And now there's a hymn of praise to him in verses 15 to 19. Especially in this, we see how the false gods of Babylon were useless to resist or thwart God's purposes for Babylon or for his people. What's remarkable about verses 15 to 19 is they are exact duplication, word for word, of what God said previously in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. He was saying it to Israel there. He's saying it to Babylon here. Isn't that fascinating? Sin is sin before the holy God. And what God has to say now to a spiritually blind and heathen Babylon originally needed to be said to God's own people in their deep sin. We are in the same sin, but we're also in covenant with God. And our covenant with God is what's dominant about our identity. So verse 15 begins that God made the earth made the earth, showing his power, wisdom, and understanding. Verse 16, his verbal commands control the weather, the sky, the earth, storms of lightning and rain, notably the wind, as we touched on earlier. Verse 17, in contrast, the false gods were created by men, false gods so far from controlling the movements of the air, the false gods don't even have breath in themselves, which is, of course, a way of saying that they're not alive, they're not real gods. Verse 18, in fact, they're such fake and worthless gods that when the big invasion hits Babylon, these gods will be shown to have no help for their citizens because they can't even save themselves. The false images and uh, statues, perhaps made of metal, will be destroyed in the war. Compare the usefulness of such false gods to the usefulness of the true God in verse 19, where God makes a beautiful poetic understatement. Did you catch it? I was trying to emphasize as I read Not like these is he. Not like the false gods. Yeah, right, understatement. Not like dead idols is the living God. And look at the four ways he then describes himself in verse 19. Number one, the portion of Jacob. Number two, the one who formed all things. Again, the creator. Number three, cherishing Israel as his inheritance. And number four, having the name, the Lord of hosts. It's like saying, the top general of all the armies of heaven. Lord of hosts, that's how he describes himself in verse 19. And the emphasis of it all is the closeness and loyalty of his relationship to us, the creator God, in relationship to this small band of former prisoners of war, exiles. Start reading this message from God. Right now you're stuck in prison, but you have the God of heaven and earth on your side. He's your portion He who planned the downfall of Babylon has planned out your homeward journey. He who brings forth the destroying wind will put that wind at your back. And then verses 20 to 24, there's an elegant poem that underscores the same message by repetition. And here's the main message, that God formerly used Babylon as a weapon, but now God's destroying that weapon. 
Verse 20, God said to Babylon, you are my hammer. And then nine times the phrase is repeated with, you I smash. It's my translation or, uh, as, we, as we have it here in these, these verses. It begins, verse 20, break, with you I break, with you I break. Smash nations in pieces, verse 21. Horse and rider, chariot, charioteer. Verse 22, smash men, women, old and young. Verse 23, smash shepherds and flocks, farmers and plowmen, governors and their military commanders. What is the meaning of all this hammering and smashing? It's summarized in verse 24, where God says, I will repay Babylon. If you'll allow me one more Hebrew word, you are going to be shocked. If you know a couple Hebrew words, you probably know the word shalom. And shalom means to us peace, right? But it's a complicated word because it actually means to complete something. So on the good side, we complete our lives, and shalom means I have a good relationship with God, with my family, with the world, and everything else. Life is good. Shalom is a complete good life. May it be good all the way around. But on the negative side, completion is to bring all things together so it all is a finished cycle. So he says here in verse 24, I will shalom Babylon. What? It's a great translation here to say I'll repay Babylon because you think of shalom as the word come full circle. Let me say it this way. Something in the universe is out of sorts when evil Babylon is getting away with it and God's covenant people are kept in prison and exile. Something's wrong here in the universe. And whatever Babylon did, God needs to do to them. And so God says, I'm going to make everything right. Everything right in Babylon and everything right in Israel. There would again be peace in God's world because the perpetrator would get the justice coming to him. But there's a flip side. As you know from our teeter-tatter, as you know from winnowing, the flip side is something in the universe is out of sorts when covenant people of God are detained in exile. He's going to fix that. Imagine how things played out literally now. There were exiles who were still alive 70 years later who returned home to see what 70 years earlier the Babylons had done to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem And some of those exiles would see that in God's world, what goes around comes around because they would see a massive slaughter of Babylon. That's what's being described here. What goes around comes around, comes full circle. The universe is going to be righted again. I'm in charge. And believe me, by the time it's over, I will make it right. That's the shalom. He's saying, I will repay Babylon. What a beautiful image. We move on to verses 25 to 33. The Lord's purposes stand. The whole orientation is these four words. He says to the nation that you never want to hear, I am against you. You you don't ever want to hear those words from the living God. What more needs to be said? Jeremiah just gives us the slideshow now. Uh, Babylon's described this time not as a wind, not as a weapon in God's hand, not as a gold cup in the Lord's hand, but this time Babylon's described as a destroying mountain. You could think of it as a volcano. A volcano in two stages. First, the active volcano erupts and spews its lava and destroying everything around it. Second stage, the volcano, volcano blows up into little bits. There's two stages for Babylon. They destroy all nations and then they themselves implode and are attacked, and are destroyed. Verse 26, no one's even going to want a souvenir. 
It'll be so pulverized there won't be anything left salvageable, not some large stone to be used as a foundation or corner piece of some future new construction. No, Babylon's destined to, as we read in verse 26, to remain a perpetual waste. Then verses 27, 28, God gives seven commands. Set up a standard, which was a flag or a banner that go in front of invading armies. Number two, blow the trumpet. Number three, prepare for war. Number four, summon kingdoms. Number five, appoint a marshal against her. Number six, bring up horses. Number seven, prepare for war, which is a repeated command. Then verse 29, the impact of all these commands is described. The land trembling in pain. Why? Because the Lord God's purposes against Babylon stand to make Babylon a desolation. Verse 30, details are given for how the mighty Babylon fell. How could that happen? They were top dog, militarily successful for a very long time. How did they fall? Here's how. We're told in verse 30, the warriors stopped fighting, completely demoralized. They hid in their strongholds. Their courage failed while their house was on fire. How did they get so fraidy cat? Because they got a glimpse Verse 31 shows the Babylonian runners provided an efficient relay system by which their intelligence was gathered throughout the empire. So imagine now a relay race, one runner bringing information to the next and he bringing it to third and then the fourth and the information gets all the way from the outer parts of the field back to the king. This time, rather than swiftly bringing news of the latest Babylonian victory, sir, the runners were meeting each other to bring a message that says this in verse 31, to the king of Babylon that his city is taken on every side. Here's a runner from the west. Here's a runner from the north. Here's a runner from the south. Every side. Sir, we're going down. Historians agree with the records in the book of Daniel that in the center of Babylon that day, there was a holiday dancing and celebrating to such an extent that they were completely unaware the Persians had already penetrated the outer defenses of the city and they were coming up underneath in the irrigation systems. But these runners were not the first to inform the king. Remember Daniel chapter 5? It was God who literally wrote it on the wall for the king of Babylon with an invisible hand from heaven. It's over. God said it to the heart of the king first. Verse 32, the messengers kept coming. More bad news. The river crossings are seized by the Persians. The grassy fields are burning. The soldiers are petrified. The smoke from the burning fields would mask the enemy movements. All you see is smoke and you know somebody's out there. On every side, there's evidence of the effectiveness of the enemy, evidence of their nearness. But the Babylonian soldiers were unable to see them, let alone respond to be continued. (laughs) We have to cut off the chapter here. To be continued. But all we have left in verse 33 is a reminder of the reason that all this was happening. Verse 33, God said that Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it's trodden. Now one more slide for you. Imagine an ancient threshing floor. I'll describe it. The fleshing floor is a fitting picture for this moment in freeze frame as if a painter provided us with a still picture of a scene of frenzy. The symbolic and familiar picture was that of a threshing floor of processing grain coming in from the fields. The threshing floor would have to be swept. The holes in the floor would have to be filled in. The floor would have to be trampled hard and flat. All this would have to be done so that the threshing floor would be fully ready for use. These steps were performed in expectation of the imminent arrival of harvest. After the harvest would arrive, it was no longer the floor that would be trampled. 
it would be the grain itself that would be trampled. And here's what God says. Babylon's like a threshing floor at the time when it's trodden. And then God says what seems like a caption to our still picture painting. End of verse 33. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest will come. Freeze frame. The living God coming in judgment is the living God coming in your salvation. It's the same. I have two concluding application points from our study. Number one, be comforted that God is loyal to us. This is what you want to hear. I'm loyal to you. I will fulfill my covenant to you. I will never forsake you. That's what you want to hear from the living God. That's what we hear. Jesus was forsaken that will never be forsaken. This is the message of the gospel, the message of the cross. These pictures in our passage about destroying wind and destroying mountain all make us think of that hill of Calvary where the best person who ever lived was killed for our wrongdoing. Because we know that Christ was forsaken, we know that we will never be forsaken. How do we look at the present? How do we look at the future? When we think about the end of the world, the day of the Lord, what do we think of? We should be comforted in every thought of it. We look with confidence in God's loyalty to us. Consider what John wrote in 1 John 2.17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Be comforted in God's grace and loyalty to us. Despite our wrongdoing, he's a faithful God to us. That's number one. My second and last application point, be loyal to God, not idols. Now, I know you as a modern audience think of idols, especially because we're studying the Old Testament as these cute little gold or wooden images that they would design and bow down to, and you're, you're not about to do that, so you feel you're not in danger of idolatry at all. But the truth is that we are very susceptible to idolatry. It's why it's the first commandment out of the Ten Commandments. You have no other gods before me. Idolatry is whenever we trust in anything or anyone other than God alone for our well-being and safety. You start to trust your spouse. You start to trust your parent. You start to trust your sibling. You trust your friend. You trust this person that you've found. Idols can be anything. It's a big deal. It's a very close danger. Because God gave it as number one out of the list of ten, we ought to pay attention. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 10.6. Do not be idolaters. It's a real threat to us. It's what happened to Israel. It's what happened to Babylon. It's, it's not just because idols won't help you in an emergency because they don't exist. It's because chasing other gods is disloyal to our God and offensive to him. We have a God who's provided everything we're ever going to need. We ought not to trust in anything else because we don't need anything else. If you need something, if you're feeling a lack, lean into him. Come closer to him. Reach out to your God. Don't reach to another God. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 106, speaks to this. What are we specially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? Answer, these words before me or before my face in the first commandment teach us that God, who sees all things and takes special notice of and is displeased with the sin of having any other God. God takes special notice of that sin. It's sin number one, if you will. Top commandment broken. And in question 105 of the larger catechism, we read this. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are, and it's very long, I'm just pulling one quote out for you, 
having or worshiping more gods than one. And I think what we are guilty of is not giving up on God and going after some other god. You're a Christian through and through. But I think what we're tempted by is much more subtle. We have God, but we also want to trust in this. Having another God added to my life because God doesn't seem to be coming through right now in the ways that I asked him to. Having or worshiping more gods than one is part of what's forbidden in the first commandment, part of the concern of Jeremiah chapter 51, part of what the thrust of the Old Testament is. And I think it works out like this. Sometimes we have our Sunday God when we dress up and we come to church and we sing together and then we have a different thing we trust in for weekdays. We want to worship God and we come to worship services and then pursue other things. And that's the dangerous, subtle sin of idolatry. And so my second application is that. Be loyal to God, not idols. John wrote 1 John 5, 21, keep yourselves from idols, indicating ongoing activity. We have to be diligent about it. Come back to God. Freshen up our relationship to him. Brothers and sisters, by God's covenant commitment to us, we are not forsaken, and yet we forsake him. And what he asks us to do is repent of that and ask for his forgiveness, come running back to him. He will openly embrace us. And we rejoice again in the grace of God through Jesus Christ who was crucified and risen again for our permanent acceptance by our faithful God. Be comforted that he's loyal to us. Be loyal to him.